I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we are having an absolute rave on top of a book. And if you want to just go to the regularly scheduled event, you can read the book yourself. This is the after party. If you want to go to the party, go to the party. But this is the after party. And if you don't like the after party, you said, I've got a bedtime and I'm sick of it. The people here are a little bit gross. I need to go to bed. (laughs) I don't want to be around them. I respect that. And I say healthy, healthy, healthy choices for you. I hope you go home and sleep. But if you want to come party, baby, we are going to be out till 11, 11.30. The next night. Yeah. We're doing blow. We're doing dust. We're doing heroin. We're doing Cat Marnell's How to Murder Your Life. Yeah. And also, we do not encourage recreational drug use. I feel like we do encourage recreational drug use from time to time. We encourage having a nice time with drugs you understand around people you trust and not reckless use of addictive substances around people who scare you. Excellent. Excellent safety warning. Thank you. Do we have any announcements besides our general safety warnings? You guys, we are actually getting really freaking close to the tour. We just had the most fun of all time in Toronto. I have to say, we still got it. The people were laughing. You guys are one of my favorite cities I've ever been to in my life. This is coming out so many weeks after we went to Toronto, but it was recorded exactly after we went to Toronto, and that's what's important. Yeah, but we say Toronto now because we are moving there. Toronto. Yes. We had so much fun, and I'm so excited to see everybody else on this tour. I know the first Chicago show was sold out, so get your tickets for the second Chicago show while you can. We're going to Minneapolis. We're going to D.C. We're going to Atlanta. We're going to Nashville. We're going to Denver. We're going to D.C. We moved D.C. to a bigger venue. I did a really funny joke on my friend who lived in D.C. What'd you say? I said, hey, bad news about the D.C. show. We had to move the date because we sold it out, and so we're going to a bigger venue. We didn't move the date. Oh, move the venue. Good joke. If you've read the DM, it was funny. I believe you. Anyway, so we're so excited at San Francisco. Yeah, and that's it for now. There's still some tickets left, but they do sell out. Please come out. We'd love to meet you guys. I think we're going to have new merch for the tour. Sweatshirts and tank tops have been restocked on our website. We call it the Very Smart Worm sweatshirt because it is very intelligent looking. If you like that worm tank, it is actually one of my favorite tank tops of all time. Those are restocked, so get yours while you can before they sell out again. For even more episodes per week, you can subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Last week, we talked about, and just like that, we talked about an absolutely unhinged Instagram post we saw from Jenny Mullen, and we interviewed the Unbiased Science Podcast about Lyme disease. There's a lot of bonus content right now, so it's a really good time to subscribe. Anyway, Ashley. Yeah. If you were a celebrity and last week was a memoir, what would you title your chapter? I am in my health girl era. I'm doing such a good job. I started going to the farmer's market, not just to like walk around the farmer's market and look at stuff because that's what I usually do. But I bought stuff from the farmer's market this week. And me and the coffee lady are kind of in a fight. But me and the fishmonger have become very close friends. (laughs) I like really did a shop at the farmer's market. Who are you? I know. And then I like made some food. I know. I went last night. She treated me to a dinner of kale salad, which was really beautiful. It was kale and salad dressing. From the salad dressing lady and kale from the kale person. And then she made us fish. Yeah. That definitely was cooked at least partially. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm learning. It was anywhere between 80 and 100% cooked, which is all you need because sushi. I will say neither of us are dead at this point, almost 24 hours later. Yeah. So, you know, we're learning, we're growing, we're working on stuff. But overall, I'm purchasing healthy whole foods and then preparing them as I believe might work. (laughs) And I'm really excited for you. I found recipes on websites. I made recipes recently. Who are we? Who are we? This is so crazy. Claire, if you were to describe your week, not in terms of recipes, but just in whatever words you so choose, what would you title the chapter? It's kind of a kickoff of yours. Okay. You guys, I've been like on my fitness grind, but with the wedding coming up. And you know what I forgot that happens when you start working out regularly? What? You get really strong and it feels so good. I had this idea that now that I'm 30, my body was just incapable of ever working out again. I was like, I'll never be like a strong in shape, cardiovascularly fit person again. But you know what it turned out it was? The problem was just that I wasn't ever working out more than like once every two weeks. And it turns out that wasn't actually how you build endurance or anything. So all those times I thought I'd never be able to run a mile. It was just like if I had tried a third time, that would have been the trick. This weekend, I was giving Mac a piggyback ride. What? That's like a 200 pound man. And I was just thinking, oh my God, I could do squats. I was like so With jacked. Mac? Yeah, everybody was kind of impressed. Were you on drugs? No, I was on the high of life, baby. I just thought, wow, if there was a situation where Mac was like fast asleep and the house was on fire, he wouldn't even be in trouble at all. Because I could take care of it. You're like a fireman. I'm a fireman. The strongest profession there is. (laughs) And I'm just like, look at me. Women can even be firemen now. Women can do anything a fireman can do. It's so nice when you work out a lot and then you're like walking upstairs or something and you're like, look at me just walking up these stairs. Like it's nobody's business. There's nothing freakier than going to a workout class and being like, huh, I can do that move. Anyway, should we get into this week's chop? Or book. Yeah. <laughs> you just want to do one chapter or do you want to do the whole thing? I kind of just want to do one chapter, but I guess we'll do the whole thing. This book made me sad. This book is tough. This book was an oft-requested book by you guys. How to Murder Your Life by Kat Marnell, a down and out it girl in New York City. I have to say, the bitch can write. This was a great book. I didn't want to do it. I stand by the fact that this is not really the type of memoir we do on this podcast, but you know. A hundred episodes in and we're kind of broadening the horizons. (laughs) I will say our horizons started to broaden when we did Leah Michelle's cookbook slash journal. Her Leah Michelle specific magazine. Yeah. No, this isn't normally the type of book we cover, but every now and then you guys know we like to dig into something a little obscure. And this was great and I'm excited to talk about it. It was very good, but again, it like bummed me the fuck out. Tell me more. I felt like very anxious reading this book. I felt very sad about society reading this book. I think that there is a lot of drug addict enabling that happens in just every little corner of our world. And it's really sad the way we get so much entertainment out of watching people ruin their lives. Even the way people are so ravenous about this book, it's still like a really sad story with no real consequences. (laughs) I think people love to like glamorize the ideas of excessive drug use and things like that. And I think this book does a really good job of showing you just how horrifying it is and how horrible it is. But I don't think that it fully reached the people reading it for the most part. I think she's like a unique example of somebody who's both an author and a persona. Yeah. I was talking to a friend recently, Cece, who was coming out with a memoir and she was saying, you know, like even Jeanette McCurdy, she had a profile in the New York Times, but she didn't have a New York Times book review. I'm looking at the back cover of this Kat Marnell book, and she did have a New York Times book review review 
but she also has a New York Times profile. And so I wonder if the people who glamorize this book have read this book or just know the persona, know that she got to go on to keep being an author with a book. Yeah, I think it just really makes me sad overall the way that because she's still like a hot girl with an online presence at the end of this, the drug use is kind of glamorized. And I think that there is like a certain level of drug addict that people are like excited and impressed by where if two things were different in her life, people would be quite repulsed by her and like would pass her on the street and not give her a dollar. Oh, yeah. This book is about the glaring privilege of privilege. Yes. (laughs) But like well acknowledged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying is it's not her. There's something about like the culture on this book that stresses me out. Mm -hmm. So she starts with an anecdote about one of her worst but not bottomed out moments. It was just a really bad moment in the heart of her addiction. She was 26 years old, an associate beauty editor at Lucky Magazine. When you're a magazine editor or an associate editor, you get invited to a lot of press events. There are a lot of events where like advertisers and makeup lines and beauty companies will invite you to these things to just like ingratiate themselves with the magazines. Everything you see influencers do today that everybody's like, how are these brands affording these trips for these girls? They've always been doing that for the beauty editors who used to be the gatekeepers of the beauty world. It's now just on display. Right. So the Tarte trip used to be inviting a bunch of beauty editors to Cirque du Soleil with like a private VIP tent. And now it's a Tarte trip or inviting a bunch of influencers to a Beyonce concert or whatever. Like these are just things that have always existed. So she was at this Cirque du Soleil event. She was fucked up. She fell down in the aisle during the performance, which is actually very dangerous because if you throw off the Cirque du Soleil's concentration, I think they could die. And then at intermission, she was asked to leave and her and the advertising executive or whatever hated each other. And she was like, well, this cost me my job. And it didn't. But it was bad. It was bad. And like that same VP of advertising for she says one of the major, I'm I'm guessing L'Oreal, she says one of the major makeup brands in the world had already that year seen her miss an entire spa weekend that they were hosting her at because she was just drunk and fucked up in her bed. And when they came into the hotel room, she was just like naked, passed out. And again, no consequences. No consequences. It somehow like didn't even really get back to her boss for the most part. And then we get back to her childhood. So this is the catchy intro chapter of like, can you believe how bad things got? How did we get here? Let's roll back the tape. As far back as I can remember, I've always wanted to be a beauty editor. To me, being a beauty editor was better than being the president of the United States. Yes, I lifted these lines directly from the opening of the movie Goodfellas and replaced gangster with beauty editor, but they work here in my story too. So then she paints the story of her childhood. She is from a very wealthy family outside of D.C. It was idyllic. They had a tennis court, beautiful fields. People like wanted to get married at their house. Like It was a beautiful home that was also like really fucking weird. And she lived in the basement. Yeah, it was a Frank Lloyd Wright design that was almost like a railroad of glass windows. And then her room was like down in the concrete basement. Yeah. So it was actually, she says, supposedly Frank Lloyd Wright's apprentice who Frank Lloyd Wright had like broken up with. So I think he had started this house and then it got finished off by someone else. And so it was like not up to code or something. And so her room was always wet. I was born on September 10th, 1982 in the District of Columbia under a crack rock white moon. I've got a cassette tape recording of my birth and everything. A sample. It's a girl, the doctor announces. A girl, my mother wails? I didn't want a girl. So she has an older brother and an older sister who are almost never mentioned in this book. Her older sister a little bit, but her brother like literally not at all. I don't even think she says his name. 
Everything was angular. The only thing in the whole house with any curves was the baby grand piano. My mom had a scale and it said thinner, like the Stephen King movie. Everything about my mother was skinny, even her nickname for me, Bones. My mother had diabetes, so we always had a live-in nanny. My blood sugar is low, my mom would say, when my sister and I had one of our knockdown fights. Then she'd go back to the very long, skinny hall to her bedroom and shut the door. Her mom came from a wealthy, like, waspy Southern family, and their grandma actually lived in the guest house on the property and had helped them pay for it, I think. Yeah, but her dad didn't like when the grandma came over. So the grandma just kind of, like, stayed in her guest house, I think. Her mother was a psychotherapist with a private practice on 42nd Street Northwest and a part-time job at the Psychiatric Institute of Washington in Wisconsin Avenue. She wasn't home much. Sometimes she took me to Saks Fifth Avenue in Chevy Chase to see a handbag she was thinking about. So she paints this kind of idyllic but absent parent childhood, and then she hits us with this line. Kids, her expression was smooth as stone in our Japanese rock garden. Go to your rooms. On my way downstairs, I saw the potted tree in the foyer had been knocked over. A picture was off the wall. Someone I knew who had smashed absolutely everything. No one ever explained why. And then she introduces her dad. My dad was the chief of psychiatry at a big hospital and oversaw the adolescent unit at another. He made Washington Magazine's best doctor's issue every year, but he told me it wasn't a real award. And then she goes on to say, my dad is such a talented physician that he could prescribe antipsychotics with his eyes closed. I'd wake him up from his Saturday afternoon nap in the backyard hammock. A book would be splayed open on his chest. Dad, he'd open his eyes, phone, he'd take the cordless, then he'd close his eyes again, he'd listen for a second, then risperdal, he'd mumble two milligrams, and he'd fall right back to sleep after he hung up. She says her parents never spent any time together except when they were playing tennis and the dad would berate the mom. He never got physical, but it sure got scary. To this day, I completely shut down when someone is yelling. Her dad would freak out and storm out. There was a lot of chaos in their home, it seems. She says they would have nights where he would have this like full-blown breakdown at the dinner table, break stuff, and then storm out. And the mom would call the police. The police would show up. And by the time the police got there, she'd be like, oh, no, nothing's the matter. Don't say anything bad about your father. My mom would sigh when I came to her, which wasn't too often. She'd be sitting in her bedroom watching L.A. Law. Can you rub my arm? Tennis elbow. The older I got, the more I liked living in that gnarly basement. It was like my own world. I picked the bugs off my head in the basement. Then I'd pick the fleas off Benny the bear. I kept my room like a swamp, but no one cared. No one ever bothered me. Seriously, I could get away with murder down there and no one ever knew. I had lice for months and didn't tell my mom. Oh my God. So in middle school, she like makes some friends. She gets really into the punk scene or kind of grunge. She's obsessed with Courtney Love. She loves Nirvana. She has a cool hippie friend and through them, she gets to go to music festivals all the time. She loves making her own magazines. She loves listening to all that music, doing her hair, thrifting, and her parents absolutely fucking hate it. So her dad's super conservative and is always finding ways to ground her to take away privileges. And at first, it wasn't that bad. But then when she's 13 and her sister is 14, her sister gets sent to like a Paris Hilton, Utah school. One of those horrible schools for teenagers that are literal torture. When she was 14 and I was 13, Emily pulled a knife on my dad in the kitchen. My dad put my sister in a psych ward then took her out again. I didn't ask questions, that is, until one Sunday when I came upstairs for breakfast and Emily was gone. She talks about going to visit her and being so freaked out by what she saw that the girls all had no eyebrows. They seemed so freaky. Every single day, Emily would write them a letter about how much she missed them and how she felt like none of them even remembered her and it doesn't seem like anybody cares that she's gone and they never responded to those letters. And she was like, I could tell it was fucked up. They shouldn't have sent her away like that. They shouldn't have sent her away like that. So basically the way she explains it is her dad had these horrible fits of anger and Kat and the mom would just clam up and Emily, the sister, would fight back. Especially as she got older, she would scream back. And so that's why she had to go away because she didn't submissively take the dad's 
meltdowns. My parents have said that Emily had to go to Utah so that peace could be restored to our family, but that's not what happened at all. My dad's stressed and therefore his temper was worse than ever. He screamed and screamed, even though there was no one yelling back anymore. And now with Emily gone, he screamed mostly at me. So then the dad at the dinner table will just start placing things in front of her that they had found in her room and grounding her for them. So he finds a bikini kill CD that says pussy whipped. And he's like, this is inappropriate. You can't go on your ski trip. He finds a Cypress Hill t-shirt that has a marijuana leaf on it. No friend's houses for a month. She would go to her mom and beg and cry and say, please, like, please help me. Is this so unfair? Her mom never helped her. And then one day she comes home and she finds her mom snooping in her room and she realizes her mom has been the one going through her stuff and bringing these illicit items to her dad and essentially just setting her up to get screamed at. So for almost all of her ninth grade year, she isn't allowed to see her friends. She's not even allowed to listen to her own music. She's just stuck in her basement. So the one thing she works on is this magazine she's obsessed with. It's a zine. So she gets really into zine culture, which is kids would like place these ads in papers for like zine trading. So you could make your own zine and trade it for someone else's zine. And they would like print out copies and mail them to each other. It was like paper blogging, she says. Or you could buy someone else's zine for a dollar. And she's working and working and working on this zine for months. And finally, it's almost ready to print and be sent out. And she goes to find it. And it's not there. And she goes up to her mom and she's hysterical, begging, I'll do anything. I sobbed. I was still on my knees, pounding on the floor, trying desperately to get through to her. Please, mom, if you love me, you'll give it back. You don't understand. Please, please. This went on and on. Nothing works. I'd coaxed obscene CDs back and things like that from her. But tonight was different. My mom had a funny expression as she watched me implode. This is how I knew it was bad. Eventually, my mom admitted that she couldn't give me my zine back. She'd shown it to my dad who destroyed it. I didn't know it meant that much to you, she said. So after that, she's like, all right, I have to get out of this house. And she goes to them at the beginning of her sophomore year. Her grades had become awful in high school. She's like, I don't know what happened. The hormones just made me stupid. But she goes to them and she's like, I want to turn my life around. Please send me to a boarding school. And they were like, great idea because they seem really pro the out of sight, out of mind approach with raising children. (laughs) So she gets sent to boarding school and she's excited about it. Her dad says, you need to cut the crap. You need to get your shit together. And she's like, yeah, I know. I didn't want him or anyone else in the family, but mainly him to have a role in her life anymore. So she gets there in time for the second trimester and her grades are pretty bad and she just doesn't know what to do. She's like, I look at the paper and the words are moving around. I can't focus. And then one day in the final semester of the year, she's hanging out with this guy and he's like, oh, just take some Ritalin. She had never seen Ritalin before. He's like, well, I have ADD and this is the symptoms and this is what I take for it. So she takes it, does her homework, stays up all night, and nails everything. And she calls up her dad and goes, I have ADD. I need Ritalin. And he sends it. She says that her and her parents have a different version of how this story took place. But we do know that by the next couple weeks, her dad was regularly prescribing her Ritalin. Her grades just went up and through the roof. By the next year, she was getting high honor roll. She was like tied for highest GPA. Yeah. And so all that next year, her grades are incredible. She's also doing drugs. So she makes drug friends. Yeah, she says having access to these drugs make her friends for the first time since she got there. And she's friends with all the senior kids who party a lot. And they don't just party like kids party. These are rich kids at boarding school. So they're going into the city on the weekends, into Boston and into New York, renting hotel rooms and having these like drug-fueled orgies. And she never has anywhere to go. And she just tags along. The thing about having drug friends, though, is they're not your real friends. She remembers going to Boston one time and tagging along with the older girls who's just dumper at the boys' hotel room where she's just kind of abandoned for the night, told to take a bunch of shots, and it's where she loses her virginity. And this is like the beginning of a ton of experiences like this where she is just 
so vulnerable, completely left alone, and with awful men. Yeah, and it's hard because she doesn't agree that she was taken advantage of almost. And it's fine. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to put that on her if that's not how she chooses to process these experiences. But it is very disturbing. The end of her junior year, she meets this guy named Nikki, another rich kid. They hit it off. They become good friends. They're always hanging out and giggling. And by senior year, they're dating and they're in love. They are the it hot couple, most obsessed with each other couple. So she stops hanging out with her party friends. She's only spending time with Nikki. She's so in love with him. They are banging all the time. And around the winter, she finds out that he's cheating on her. She also finds out that she is pregnant. What a horrible, horrible time. I mean, even writing about this period still makes me want to take a huge blunt full of PCP to the face, and it's 15 years later. Nikki stepped right out of the relationship with me and into one with her. Now all eyes were on the three of us, and I was the pregnant, though no one knew, Bridget Moynihan to their Tom and Giselle. Oof. Remember that scandal when it was in the papers in 2007? I flashbacked my own triangle and Lawrence in 2000. At first, she has no idea who to call. Yeah. She's like, you couldn't like Google abortion clinic on the internet back then. The internet was still nascent. So she had to look it up. And then also there was no way to get to a phone without a teacher around. So one day she finally cuts math class, goes back to her dorm, and uses the phone in the middle of the day when nobody else would be around. So she calls an abortion clinic. They say, we can't do that without a parent's consent. And she's like, well, I can't get a parent's consent. And they're like, okay, try a different state. So she tries New Hampshire and she makes an appointment. But by the time she gets there, she's in her second trimester. And they're like, we can't do a second trimester abortion here. So she once again has to go home and she's just like putting off dealing with this. She doesn't know what to do. Here's a life lesson for you kids. It's much easier to go through something upsetting when you're on drugs. The more intense the drug, the more you forget your problems. It's basic science, really. I numb my bad feelings with Ritalin. I was tweaked every night, grinding my teeth on my desk until five in the morning. Wendy started wearing headphones to bed and a sleep mask. She's like buying drugs with like rich old waspy kids who are about to get kicked out. She's like sneaking off campus. She's just acting insane generally. She's selling drugs to the freshmen. All the teachers kind of know that something's up, but she won't ever fast to it. And they like can't really pin anything on her. Eventually, a teacher asks her if she's pregnant and she's like, nope. And then she starts bleeding out in the bathroom. It's the night of the senior directorial debuts. Her and her ex are both directing one-act plays. And she goes to the bathroom and just starts hemorrhaging blood. Her favorite teacher takes her to the hospital where they tell her, you're still pregnant. She goes, I'm sorry I lied. Please don't tell my parents. I don't know what to do. Please, Rhiannon. I started crying. Please, I don't know what to do. She dropped me off at my dorm. I carried my bloody Sergio Valentes inside a plastic bag. So she comes back to school the third trimester and starts acting unhinged. She's pregnant. She's heartbroken. She's doing crazy hard drugs. And her and her friend George, who had both gone into Bard, start writing like really inappropriate, fucked up things on the board admitted students website. Word gets back to Bard, who sends the word to her school. And at this point, everyone knows she's pregnant. Nobody knows what to do. Everybody in the school knows she's on drugs, but they haven't caught her. She does this insane prank where she covers a baby doll in blood that she stole from the props department and just like drops it in the middle of the courtyard. Yeah. So they call her parents. And they kick her out. They expel her. With six weeks left of senior year of high school. And then Bard rescinds her acceptance. So now she's with six weeks left, gone from being almost valedictorian to she is like the expelled pregnant teen. Yeah. And her mom takes her to get an abortion. And she has a horrible experience. Her mom does not allow her to get the anesthesia to be knocked out. And she doesn't even know how far along she was. But it's definitely like as far along as you can be. And I think still legally get an abortion. And she was like, it was terrible. It was a terrible, painful, excruciating experience. The way she writes this experience is so harrowing. And then she's just having an absolute meltdown on the way home. She's heaving and sobbing and she can't calm down. 
and her mom just gets her Xanax. I don't even think they spoke. I read the label Xanax. The prescribing doctor was my dad. So obviously we usually stick to what's in the book. And in this book, Kat writes in really deep and scary detail about her drug addiction, which was kicked off by her parents prescribing her Ritalin and Xanax. And then you have her sister, who we know from the internet as someone who is falling apart right now. And you're like, of course, these are two girls who grew up in this situation where like no one spoke. They just prescribed you drugs and sent you away. I hate to be like, well, A plus B equals C, but like A plus B equals C. Like if you don't let kids be people, if you just like drug away their problems until one day they have an absolute mental breakdown, they will definitely have an absolute mental breakdown. So they have to take her back home. She enrolls in this DC school that's like for basically rich kid dropouts or rich kid fuck ups where you can pay per credit. And everybody there has been kicked out of like these super prestigious schools. She gets a boyfriend there. She says that they spent the whole summer just driving around doing drugs with this like high level politician's son who has secret service there who will come and like let these kids drive drunk and do hard drugs. But if somebody has like a disposable camera, that shit gets thrown out. I have a theory that it's Al Gore's son. I believe that. I looked it up because I was like, who would have secret service at this point in time? And Bill Clinton's vice president was Al Gore. His son is 40 years old and has been arrested for drug use. Oh. Doesn't that seem right? And Kat Marnell is 40. Yeah. Spot on. Right? Because not everybody's kids get secret service. No. It has to be VP only, right? I think it's like VP and up. Yeah, because in Veep, Selena Meyer's daughter had secret service. Okay. Well, then fact checked. What other proof do you need? And how much lower does it go? Do like Nancy Pelosi's kids have secret service? Does Nancy Pelosi have kids? It feels like no, because I wouldn't even know that they exist. Have you ever wished you had thicker hair? You can join the club, but you can also join me in doing something about it. Maybe stress is causing your hair to thin, or is it the other way around? There are so many root causes of hair thinning, and Nutrafol is addressing the key root causes through a whole-body approach to hair health. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement clinically shown to improve visible thickness and strength. From postpartum to menopause to plant-based lifestyles and no matter your life stage, Nutrafol has four unique formulas to support women. Each is physician-formulated using drug-free, science-backed ingredients so that you get the most reliable results. Go to Nutrafol.com to take their health wellness quiz, identify the causes of your thinning hair, and Nutrafol will give you a personalized plan for better hair growth through their whole-body health approach. Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting the root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism. Nutrafol is also now available in a vegan formula. Their newest supplement is formulated for women ages 18 and up with plant-based lifestyles who are experiencing signs of hair thinning. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. I am so thankful to Nutrafol. I had no idea how much hair thinning I was experiencing. And now that I've been putting my hair through the ringer, I am so grateful to have an internal solution to visibly thicker, healthier hair. Take the first step to visibly thicker and healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code WORM. Find out why over 4,000 healthcare professionals recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com promo code WORM. That's Nutrafol.com promo code WORM. So she's 17, kicked out of high school at a new burnout high school, partying with politicians' kids. 
And then she gets the idea for acting school. She's like, of course that makes sense. I'm going to go to acting school. She gets into acting school in New York, but I don't know what acting school it was. She just didn't care about it. She spends the summer, I guess, alone in New York. Living in this storyteller's loft in like one of the spare bedrooms, but she wasn't allowed to go anywhere in the loft except for the bedroom and the bathroom. And then the other person who lived there was the storyteller's adopted son, who was Ishmael, the writer of A Long Way Gone, which is about his time as a child soldier in the Sierra Leone Armed Forces. And I saw that man speak in my high school. It was great. It was incredible. And it was also one of those speeches where you went home and you were like, well, I should stop being alive. Like, what am I contributing to this world? It was crazy. He was the most positive person I'd ever met in my life. He came to our school and he was like, yeah, so what they did is they got us all addicted to drugs and they would wake us up in the middle of the night and you were never allowed to sleep more than one hour and they would starve us nearly to death so that we'd become so dependent on them that we had to like murder whoever they said. But then when I got to college, you know, pulling all-nighters was a breeze. Oh and sometimes, God. you know, you're sitting there during the SATs, you might get hungry. Not me, because I'd been used to starving myself for days. So in the long run, it was like good practice. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm over here like, I can't do my homework. It's on the other side of my room. <laughs> I literally was like, I need to like stab myself in the eye. I hate myself so much. He had a really good perspective on things. <laughs> I think he made a shit ton of money on that book, as he should. Go buy the book. Anyway, so she switches to Adderall from Ritalin and loves it. She loves Adderall. She's like, oh, this was what I was looking for. So she spends the summer alone, but like hopped up on Adderall. And that's when she also dabbles in bulimia for the first time. I was flat out depressed by the 4th of July. It was bad, bad day. I desperately wanted to go to the FDR drive and watch fireworks, but I didn't have anyone to go with. I couldn't go watch them alone, I thought, because people would know I was a loser. So she ends up binging and purging for the first time in her life here. I stood and washed my hands in the sink. That was easy, I thought. My eyes were teary in the mirror. I could feel the cockroach watching me. I was practically crying, and all because I didn't have friends on the 4th of July. Being young is so funny, isn't it? Something about that line, like, I do actually think she's such a great writer because she has this way of not glamorizing the drug use. We'll get to it. She makes it sound bad. She makes the bulimia sound awful. But she always has a sense of perspective. She's always deeply aware of how privileged she is. She's not writing a joke book and then being like, another thing that you should be careful about is racism. It's like, okay. <laughs> no, she like just is self-aware in this way that I bet she's not when you talk to her, but she can be when she writes because she's a good writer. And something about that line, like I feel like I have those memories of being 16 and be like, there's nothing that could be worse on earth than like being at this party where nobody likes me. I mean, not having plans on a Friday night, I remember just feeling so uncool. That you could die. That I could die. <laughs> and that I like couldn't even go downstairs and talk to my parents because I was like, they would call out that I'm home on a Friday night and I'm like too embarrassed for my parents to be like, why don't you have plans on a Friday night? So she has, like all celebrities have, a 9-11 story, except for she doesn't really. She was living downtown. She turned 19 on September 10th, 2001, and then the next morning was 9-11. And she's like, yeah, it was horrible. But she's like, but this isn't the place for that. <laughs> so she skips it. Anyway, so she's on Adderall. She's going to acting school. She has no friends because she just doesn't fit in in acting school and she doesn't know anyone else in New York. She makes fun of acting school a lot. She's like, I was paying so much money to watch this guy pretend to be waking up in his bedroom. She's like, we would sit there and watch him pantomime it. He'd bring in sheets from his own home, turn the box into a bed, sit there, and then he would be startled awake by his fake alarm clock. And we'd think, okay, now the action's going. And then he would hit snooze. And we'd have to sit there for 10 minutes in real time watching him pantomime being asleep. I will say, I actually do have respect for good acting. I don't think acting is overall that important. But like, I do think it is an art. But I do think whenever I hear about acting school, I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. It just always sounds like adults 
torturing children. Yeah, it's also not an art where I care about the process at all. Hearing someone talk about like developing perspective as a painter and like sure and acting, watching the final product, like when you watch someone be good at acting, like Nina Dobrev in The Vampire Diaries, (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, this is incredible. (laughs) But I don't want to hear her talk about it. I don't care. So she would just like take Adderall and stay up all night and walk around town by herself looking for people to hang out with because she wanted to be part of this like cool downtown nightlife and she knew it existed, but she didn't know how to get there. And she loves partying wholeheartedly. Like she actually does love partying. She's not looking for it to be cool. She wants friends, but this is actually the activity that she likes doing and she figures out her way in. She hangs out at the Comedy Cellar one night, the famous comedy club. And of course, there are comedians who are looking for underage girls to walk into a nightclub with. And she finds them and she gets brought to a nightclub with them. And she's like, wow, this is it. This is exactly what I've been looking for. I have to go to the comedy cellar every night and wait for pervy comedians to round up underage girls to walk into a nightclub with. That first night, I walked into the club and there was P. Diddy, who was still Puff Daddy back then. And he grabbed my arm and wanted me to sit at his table. It was so exciting. I mean, I was 19. I didn't join him, though. I just kicked off my sandals and gyrated to hot in here on a sofa elsewhere, though I might as well have been dancing on a cloud. Bliss, man. I hadn't been that happy in a long time. I never wanted the night to end, but of course it did. I walked home at 4.30 in the morning feeling throbby and exhilarated. I had to go back, not just to that club, but to that world. But how? Every night she just shows up to the cellar and she's like, I get to the point where I know all the comedians. She even kisses David Tell one time. Gross. (laughs) So he's just kissing a 19-year-old girl. He is truly like 78 years old. Yikes. (laughs) Anyway, and then she finds out that she can just go to clubs, which was a really important realization for her. That's so funny to be like, if I'm going to show up at a club, I have to come with a comedian who sucks. (laughs) How do I get in without Judah Freelander? But she makes club friends, which are not real friends. I had a summer of club friends. I particularly hit it off with another smoky-eyed blonde girl named Dara who went out every night, even though she was still in high school. She and her spiky-haired boyfriend, Ben, had just been profiled by Nancy Jo Sales in a Vanity Fair story called Ben and Dara in Love and Nothing Else Matters. It's so crazy to me the way we, like, glamorize party teens. And people are still obsessed with them. Like, I love Gossip Girl. I still didn't have any real friends, and I was very ashamed about this. Sometimes I got called out on it. Why don't I ever see you with anyone, sneered Ben one night when I plunked down at his table at Flow. Don't you have any friends? Where are your friends? He was being a jerk, but he had my number. (laughs) (laughs) This line makes me laugh. She was talking about getting ready to go to the clubs, and she says, I'd slather body shop coconut body butter, spritz banana boat tanning oil on top of that, strap on my Gucci fanny pack, and hit the streets. I used to get into cabs and slide across the back seat. I was so greasy, absolutely lubricated. But of course, like there's a downside. Once she stopped using the comics to get there, nobody was taking her home at the end of the night. I really wound up sleeping around. You know how it is when you're 19? Promoters are always taking their dicks out in the backseat of cabs and pulling you on their laps or biting your nipple through your wife beater or something comparably unspeakable. And you feel very embarrassed that the taxi driver can see and hear you, but you let it happen anyway. It was all just part of being young in New York, I guess. No one was taking me home to make love to me. Let's just put it that way. And she just keeps going through stories of like a promoter who kind of had her locked in a bathroom stall, fully naked, even when the lights came up and they were banging to make her come out going home with a liar, a not guitarist for a famous band and like how rough he was. And then just his roommate comes out of nowhere and she has to grab all her clothes. And like she's always in these situations that are just getting more and more dangerous. And she's just like, you know, that's what happens when you're alone and drunk every night in New York City. And I'm like, yeah, that's so scary. Stop it. Then she makes more permanent drug friends. She becomes close friends with this guy named Michael, who is a Calvin Klein model. They would just do drugs and have sex all the time. 
After our binges, male model Michael would need days and days of space to isolate and sleep and be depressed. I didn't understand that when I was 19, but of course I do now. Addiction. It's rough. Male model Michael would go on to sort of lose his mind and have to move out of the city and back in with his parents, who were, incidentally, honest-to-God rocket scientists. It's sad that the drugs took him down, but of course he might say the same thing about me. So then finally one summer, she meets a bunch of Upper East Side rich kids and starts dating one of them named Alex. And she falls in with this group, and the rest of this group, we have got the fat Jewish, a couple of the other people I don't know, a guy named Same. Who is a graffiti artist, if you're big in the graffiti community. Yeah, but then we've also got Sebastian, who looked like a hunky Disney villain with his muscles and white blonde curls. I don't know if we know a Sebastian. Think back to a random Coke dealer that Emily Ratajkowski made famous. Through marriage. (laughs) And divorce. And childbirth. (laughs) Anyway, he was part of this like rich party crew. She has a new group to party with. She and Alex are in love and they're doing a fuck ton of drugs. She's also always cutting her hair and her clothes. Stuff is getting cut. She's also quit acting school and enrolled in regular college. But then Alex and his whole group of rich kids moved to San Francisco. And he proposes to her and it's like, let's just get married. And she's like, well, I have to drop out of school and move to San Francisco with my husband. And her dad is like, fuck off. And so her dad cuts her off, stops prescribing her Adderall. Then she moves back and then she calls him and he prescribes her more drugs. The good thing that actually comes out of this Alex relationship is because he has all these random rich friends. Of course, there's some magazine Nepo baby. And one of his friends hooks them up with a job in Vanity Fair's fashion closet, just like steaming and organizing clothes. And then she's able to parlay it into an internship. Yeah, she finally finds a purpose in her life by getting in the Condé Nast elevator every day at four times square and being with all those clickety clackety fancy gals. And even though her boyfriend drops out like a month in and is like, oh, I don't need this job. She's like, I actually like love being here and took it dead serious. Yeah, she figures out that magazines are just her true calling, her one true love. She's obsessed with print magazine journalism. And then another friend of a friend gets her an assistant intern job at Nylon, which she is like genuinely obsessed with. And she falls in love with this really cool beauty editor named Charlotte, who would never tell you herself, but is like super famous. It's like a real cool Nepo baby. Yeah. So Charlotte is awesome. And then after that internship ends, she ends up getting another internship, I believe, at Teen Vogue. And then from Teen Vogue, she ends up with an internship at Glamour. And after her third internship, she gets kind of a part-time job at Glamour, just organizing and managing the beauty closet, which is where all the beauty samples are sent. And she's in charge of like making sure the editors get the right samples, the photo team gets the right samples. She organizes the beauty sale every couple months where they just like sell off everything in the beauty closet to people who work there. And she's just pounding Adderall to get through the day and having the time of her life. And an incredible intern. She like knows that she needs to work her butt off to do this. So she never says no to anything. She does every job. She's there on weekends. She stays late. She really is obsessed with this gig. The fall of 2004 was the beginning of an infamously obnoxious era of New York City nightlife. So you just know I had to be there. Clubs had started cluttering far west Chelsea, north of the art galleries. This followed the popularity of Bungalow 8 with its palm trees and striped booths. She becomes a real club girl. And meanwhile, her and Alex are having a horrible time. Alex's neighbors hated us. They started petitioning to have him thrown out of the building. Someone even posted a sign in the lobby that said the tenant in 4B beats women because they're constantly screaming at each other, fighting each other. Like physically fighting each other. He's always taking her slip phone, snapping them in half, throwing them out the window. They constantly suspected each other of cheating, and they both were. And then she finds out that she can get Adderall through just like going to a psychiatrist on the Upper East Side and getting another prescription. 
So she's getting prescriptions from a variety of psychiatrists in a variety of different drugstores. She has like a prescription at every place. Alex and I broke up for good in December. I tried to feel better about the same old ways by dancing on big cats at promoters' tables and fucking mad dudes, but it wasn't fun. Every night I'd cram into the taxis after the clubs with Alex, same, Alden, and Fat Chew and hit the other parties. I kept home drunk and dolo. I was lonely and getting lonelier. At least I had a new hobby, doctor shopping. There were so many psychiatrists in my new neighborhood and I just had to try them all. So she's getting more and more and more drugs. She's constantly taking Adderall and then she's taking downers to go to sleep because she's hopped up on so much Adderall that she can never actually sleep. And her Teen Vogue internship comes to an end. So she's done with college. She needs to get a real job. And she is obsessed with working at one of the big magazines. And she is just doing everything she can to apply, to apply, to apply. And she has great recommendations at this point. So she's applying and applying and applying. She also still has this glamour part-time job, like organizing the beauty closet. And she becomes obsessed with Jean Godfrey June, who is the beauty editor at Lucky Magazine. She reads her book and then is just like fascinated by this woman. And every time her boss at Glamour would come back from an event, she'd be like, was Jean there? I'm obsessed with her. And she honestly believes obsessing over Jean got her this interview at Lucky Magazine to work for Jean. She gets the job. She becomes her boss. And she's just over the moon. This is her dream job at her dream magazine for her dream boss. And she and Jean click like jelly. And like she is a very talented writer. She talks about writing her edit test for this job. And it seems like she's so good at understanding the voice of the publication she's writing for. There is a lot of talent there. She's just too strung out to finish her job ever. Yeah. So I think she was a great assistant because it was like serving one person. And I think she can be very charming and good at like a hands-on task. And like her addiction wasn't what it would ultimately become. But while she is there being this assistant and helping JGJ and getting to do little tiny beauty edits, She's also becoming more and more addicted to pills and more and more bulimic. When I wasn't doctor shopping, I was grocery shopping at 4 and 30 in the morning. I returned from a night at the Coral Room or home or wherever and changed my party outfit into something terry cloth and hit the 24-hour food emporium. So she would get all her favorite foods and then binge and then purge and then binge. And she says she would go to all different grocery stores because she got so embarrassed about how much carrot cake she was eating. It was a really tough time. Of all the things I loved about my job, I loved Jean the most. She is obsessed with Jean. I mean, even to this day, you'd think like working for someone would tarnish the relationship because I do feel like once someone is your boss, you're like, ugh, never mind. They're a human and they're kind of a bitch. She, I mean, to this day, I think has so much regret about the way she absolutely lit that relationship on fucking fire. I'd stay at the office until 10 or 11 and sometimes well past midnight, amped up, researching beauty products online, organizing Jean's office. I never wanted to go home. Whenever I wasn't at Lucky, the badness came back. I would be trust gloomy, Eeyore-esque, trudging up to my building from the train, and I was probably the only 24-year-old on the planet who dreaded weekends. I didn't go to clubs anymore. I binge ate and vomited pizza and muffins on Friday nights. Sometimes I took Adderall at 2 in the morning just to make my bulimia stop, but then I couldn't sleep. I'd crash at 2 o'clock Saturday afternoon and then wake up around 10 at night, go out and buy food and do it all again. Is reading this stuff getting repetitive? Welcome to addiction. I found that line so interesting just because I think we've read so many books where the addiction is so repetitive and the writer never acknowledges it or changes. And I do think it highlights her skill as a writer that this is a story about addiction, which is a boring story. Yeah. Like watching people cycle through the highs and the lows and the attempts to get better and the relapses. It is a story that's just hard to read over and over again and not narratively compelling because very rarely is there a change. 
But something about one, the way she writes it is really interesting. Then two, I think the thing that's interesting about her life is her life keeps getting better. Like the cycle doesn't change, but the situation keeps improving, which is bizarre and hard to understand. When you're reading it, you're like, how could things go well from here? And then they do. And you're like, what the fuck just happened? She talks about how the one thing she could not do, no matter how hard she tried, was hit a deadline. She was so bad at hitting deadlines. And one time she gets assigned more of a story than she's usually allowed to do. She's assigned a paragraph on goat's milk and goat's milk and beauty products. And she is up for like 72 hours weeping and obsessing over this story. And finally, Jean is like, you have to give me whatever you have. There's a deadline. This is a magazine. We go to print. And finally, she's like weeping in Jean's office and Jean just like tweaks it into a proper paragraph. And she's like, I can't believe it took her two minutes. Secret ingredient goat's milk was bad. The lowest point of my career so far. Little did I know, though, the lows were about to get much lower and all because of a mouse. So she moves into a new apartment and there's a mouse. But is there? I do think there was one mouse. She moves into a kind of gross apartment on Lori's side. And because of her bulimia and her binge eating, she's constantly hoarding food in her bedroom. And she says bulimia is a rodent attractor because the binge phase, she would just like leave shit out and she would just be doing it until she literally passed out. She would often take like uppers or downers just to get herself to fall asleep. So she would stop the cycle. And then she would wake up and be like covered in pizza crust. And so she got a mouse and it drove her fucking insane. And she ends up going into remission from bulimia because she wants to avoid the mouse. She has a rule, no food in the apartment. But her friend who crashes with her sometimes eats a pizza while she's out of town. And she comes home to just mouse droppings everywhere. She calls an exterminator. They spend months trying to get this mouse out of her house. She's so afraid of it. And even after they do catch the mouse, she's constantly hallucinating more mice. And I will say... Hers was worse, but even after I had that mouse problem, I was so scared of the mice. I was like hallucinating mice for like months. I would like see them in the middle of the night. Beth slept over that night, but she couldn't stay forever. The next day at work, I was weepy and demented. All I could talk about was the mouse, the mouse, the mouse. She's literally at this incredible spot. That's the other thing is throughout this book, you get the juxtaposition of her horrible home life where she's just falling into addiction, the cycles of her bulimia. And then meanwhile at work, she's being sent to the most expensive spa in the world. She's being sent to like these incredible resorts and hotels and amazing brand trips and getting free product and like anything that her boss doesn't want gets handed to her like a Lanvin bag, like just anything she wants, she's getting. And then meanwhile, at home, her house is covered in rat poop. And suddenly she just like can't get out of bed because she's over medicating herself to not freak out about the mouse. And then she like can't go to work. I didn't want to go to work. I'd think as my alarms went off and off and off, I could barely lift my head or open my eyes. I just want to sleep. Addiction versus ambition, it starts small. My bed felt like a wad of gum. She ends up falling asleep at the office one day because she can't sleep at home. She's so afraid of the mouse. I mean, she becomes so insanely paranoid. She's staying up all night. She's freaking out. She's hallucinating the mouse constantly. And she's always having to call her sister, Emily, to like save her. And Emily at that point was working in PR. She was very successful. She was living in Gramercy. And it seems like was like the put together one. So... She is like going more and more crazy over this mouse. She's staying with her sister. She's like trying to leave her apartment as much as possible. And then she explains that her hair had dreadlocked because she had stopped washing or brushing it. And she's working at this beauty magazine where everybody is like, what is going on? You have literally like knots in your hair that are visible. And at one point, her boss literally just says, you have to go get this taken care of. Like you can't keep coming to work as a beauty assistant with like hair that hasn't been brushed in months. She finally goes to the hair salon and they're like, there's nothing to do but cut it all off. Eventually, she calls her parents just weeping 
By early summer, I was the sickest I'd ever been in my life. I was so desperate to feel better that I did the unthinkable. I called my family, told the truth, and begged for help. I must have been extra exhausted and really deep in the darkness. I don't remember the first part of the conversation with my mom. I just remember crying really hard on the phone. I think I'm addicted to Adderall. I think I have a serious problem. Let me get dad. Her dad, the doctor, says that's impossible. Adderall isn't addictive. And the dad was like, well, then you're not getting any more Adderall from me if you're going to talk like this. She's like, that's the point. And her mom goes, we'll figure this out. Maybe you should just go back on Ritalin. (laughs) So they get her to the psychiatrist who she finally opens up to and explains everything that's been going on, the addiction. And she's like, okay, well, you have to go to rehab. And she refuses. She's like, I have a job. And the doctor's like, okay, well, then do outpatient therapy with me. And you have to promise not to do drugs. So she gets a bit sober for a minute. She's doing less drugs I think. And she's like a bit more controlled. And then of course she loses control again. She has an appointment with this doctor and she shows up drunk and the doctor's like, okay, well you have to go to rehab. So she goes into the office and tells Jean what happens. She tells her completely everything and just cries. I care about this job so much. I love working for you. It's the most important thing in my life. I didn't mean for this to happen. Please, please, please. And Jean like incredibly says your job will be here when you come back. We will get you the help you need. You'll go on disability, take the time you need, go to rehab. It's fine. And so she goes to this fancy schmancy rehab, Silver Hill. It's $28,000 for 28 days. And she's like, holy shit. She like doesn't even realize how fancy it is. At the rehab, they're like, well, who is paying for this? And she's like, oh, I guess I'm from rich stock. <laughs> so she's like, I didn't even think of myself as an addict. I thought of myself as like a party girl. And she also didn't really want to get sober. She just like needed a break. Yeah. So she takes it as like a 28-day break time. And she's having a great time. She's exercising. She's getting fresh air. She's got a new rehab boyfriend. Yeah. She doesn't hear from her parents the entire time. And then she gets out and goes back to work. Her mom had gone to her apartment, emptied out all her stuff, put it in the storage unit. And when she comes back to New York City, she lives with her sister while she finds a new apartment. And she moves into a duplex in the West Village with two finance people who are like, the one rule here is no drugs. We're gone a lot. We're just looking for a roommate. We want to keep it calm. And Kat is like, oh, yeah, totally. I'm, I'm not on drugs right now. She's like, I literally don't do drugs. Meanwhile, Jean has written her like the kindest letter about what a talent she is and how smart and amazing she is. And it's not always going to feel the way it feels today. And to keep going. And her addiction is constantly in the back of her mind. First of all, staying sober in your 20s is almost impossible, but she hadn't dealt with any of the underlying issues. We've all heard about the people who lose everything, their homes, their jobs, their husbands, their wives, their teeth, to finally get clean and start over. Maybe I'd lost my house keys a few times, but that was it. I was only 25. I still had my job at Lucky. My family support my health. I hadn't lost anything. She stays sober for a little bit. And then one day she just starts drinking again because she has this roommate named Becky who's just like a peppy finance girl. And she's like, what am I going to knock at a margarita with Becky? And then with drinking, she starts doing drugs again. And it just happens. This is also when she introduces us to Marco, who is her best friend for the next few years and a literal demon from hell. At first, she and Marco get along swimmingly. He'd always be like, you're so creative. You're Adderall-fueled wall collages are so impressive and amazing. She felt like he was the only one who knew the real her. And they would just do a ton of drugs together. We'd talk a little and he'd spot me the 15 pills to get me through the week. As soon as I got my next script, I'd pay him back. Then when Marco was inevitably short a week or two later, I'd spot him until his next doctor's appointment. We never screwed each other over. Pillhead honor code. So she's getting back deeper and deeper into drugs. Her and Marco are doing a lot. And Marco goes to like sketchy areas. He's leaving her in rooms where the men are just watching porn. 
it is not a safe situation, but he's always like, I love you. You're so beautiful. You're my best friend. We're soulmates. And he's like, I wouldn't have left you in that situation if I didn't think you could handle it. You're so tough. I started rediscovering the city with my new buddy. We took walks through downtown all night long, passing a bottle of red Gatorade spiked with Kettle One back and forth. She's also starting to lose it at work again. Since she's gotten back from rehab, she is lying hand over fist to everyone at work saying that she's completely sober. And every time she oversleeps, anytime anything happens, it's just like you wouldn't believe the crazy story about what happened this morning. It's never because of drugs or alcohol. And then one night there's a work party. She shows up, has a couple drinks before anyone else gets there. And she's so fucked up, her hair lights on fire from a tea light in the corner. And so she like puts it out and goes home because she can't be at this work party with hair on fire. Yeah. I mean, she's always showing up and supposed to like be the model for a video how to on braiding your hair. And her hands are so shaky. She can't actually braid her hair or sit still. But people are always covering her and being like, well, I'll be your model for this time. Don't worry about it. She's always getting extensions on deadlines. People are just buying her bullshit in a way that lets her get by long enough. The problem is that she actually does have pretty severe ADHD. So she has a really hard time living without Adderall. So she's like, okay, obviously I can't function hopped up on Adderall constantly, but I can't function on no Adderall. So I'm going to do just controlled substance use and have no Adderall at night. And of course, that lasts 10 minutes. No hard drugs, no more than two drinks on weeknights, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem is now she's back on Adderall doing uppers and she has horrible, horrible insomnia. And she's like, I can't do hard drugs. So she's taking Adderall. She takes like XR in the morning and then regular Adderall at night, which is like a lot of fucking Adderall. She's taking like 60 milligrams of Adderall, which will keep you up. And she can never sleep. She's getting Tylenol PM. She's getting NyQuil. Nothing works. She stays awake all night until the next day. She can never sleep. She calls her mom. She's like panicked. And her mom goes, well, I have a sound machine that makes thunderstorm noises. Or why don't you take half a Xanax? That always worked for me. I just got out of rehab for pills, mom. I screeched. Are you serious? Which is fucking crazy. Listen, an addict is responsible for their own addiction. But not if you're a minor who's been prescribed by your parents. Yeah. And at this point, obviously, she's 25. But the fact that her parents are like, why won't you just take drugs and be normal? Yeah. So then she starts seeing mice again. She's not taking downers again. She's only taking Adderall during the daytime. But again, she can never fall asleep. And because she will just go days without sleeping, she starts to believe that mice were like in her belongings from the old apartment and then came to her new apartment. And she sees them come out in droves at night. And she starts like smashing them and freaking out. And she's fully hallucinating. She has this idea that one day she woke up, saw a mouse in her pants, murdered it, watched the blood spill everywhere, and then went and slept in the living room. The next morning, her roommate and his girlfriend wake her up and they're like, what's happening? And she explains the whole story. And they're like, wow, that sucks. Only to find out the next week that there is no blood on the pants. Her roommate and the girlfriend that she was so sure she had spoken to weren't even there that week. They were on a business trip. And she has just been taking so much Benadryl at night to try to sleep that she's like fully tripping. Prescription drug dependency sucked, but insomnia was even worse. Being clean just wasn't worth it. She is honestly just losing her shit. At one point, her coworker Dawn is getting married and she like stays up all night with Marco the night before doing hard drugs. And then they decide Marco can just be her plus one to the wedding. She knows that he's not supposed to. He's saying, let me come, let me come, let me come. And she keeps going, no, 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 you can't go. And then at like 4 a.m., he's like, let me come. And she's like, okay, I'll just text the bride. So she keeps texting no, the bride. No, this is like in the afternoon, like leading up to the wedding. All day. She's like, hey, can I bring Marco? And then she's like, okay, you haven't answered. I'm just going to assume that's a yes. So they show up to the wedding with an uninvited plus one. And one of Dawn's bridesmaids accosts her outside the venue and is like, shut the fuck up. You cannot come in here. You cannot bring a plus one. What the fuck do you think you're doing texting Dawn all day? 
with your stupid fucking bullshit leading up to her fucking wedding. God, I wish you had an enemy like this. I would love to go batshit fucking crazy. You're the one with the fucking problem. You make your problem everyone else's problem. I know all about it. I know all about you, Kat Marnell. Everybody gives you a pass. Dawn has to put up with it. But guess what? I don't. And I don't give a fuck about you. And I'm not letting you ruin the most important day of my best friend's life. Now go home. I thought you were friends with your coworkers, Marco finally said. I am. I started to cry. We're all friends. I think she does a really good job of putting her story into perspective. Clearly, her story isn't the real story. She thought she was like getting by at work. Her coworkers were just like gleefully covering for her, but she was a pain in everybody's ass. She won't stop talking about the mice and everybody's like, yeah, that sucks. Like, it's like, it's insane. Yeah. It's like a year of talking about how you can't sleep because of mice. So this is 2008. The publishing industry is going through a bad fucking time. There are major layoffs. Dawn is laid off and Kat is promoted into her position. It's crazy. Kat is promoted to become an associate beauty editor at Condé Nast. So now, instead of just occasionally being thrown into the fire at an event or whatever, and by thrown into the fire, I mean literally getting fucked up and lighting her hair on fire, her job now is to go to these beauty events to represent Lucky Magazine to advertisers and brands. And so she says she had gotten out of rehab, and when her dad had picked her up, he had said, it's time to cut the crap. If you fail to remain sober, the rent checks stop. I'm out. Was I crazy, spoiled, and nauseatingly privileged? Duh. But I, quote, hated my dad, most ungrateful and entitled adult children do. And I was only making $26,000 a year at Lucky, and I wanted that rent money. So now that I was pretending to be in recovery whenever I spoke to my parents, whatever, I've been lying to them my whole life. But lying to my big sister was another thing. I felt so guilty. Emily was proud of me for getting clean. We'd been spending a lot of time together lately talking about her parents' divorce. Oh, yeah, her parents get divorced around this time. I didn't care at all that they were splitting, but Emily was really upset. She'd been ultra-sensitive to family stuff ever since Cross Creek Manor. That's the prison school she went to. Oh, my God. And then she has this horrible thing to her sister where her sister's like, hey, do you want to spend Thanksgiving together? And Kat's like, yeah, I do. And she's like, okay, well, like you don't have to. Just like let me know if you're not going to make it. But if you are, like, I'll make us a reservation. She's like, totally. And her sister keeps calling and checking. And on Tuesday, she's like, hey, like we're going to do Thanksgiving, right? I have a reservation for at 6. She ends up doing heroin with Marco all night, passes out on Ambien, wakes up, and it's 8 p.m. And she's missed dinner by a mile. Because of this, her family is like, okay, so you're back on drugs. The rent checks stop. But she had just been promoted and she's like, I didn't even need the rent checks from them anymore. I was making $40,000 a year. And then she tells this insane story about going to Italy. Like now she has this big job and it was a lot harder than being an assistant for her. She's supposed to go on this like fashion week trip with Procter & Gamble and she misses her flight. So she has to go economy. She gets there and she's just binging on room service, which is being paid for by the trip. And it's like really a faux pas to order hundreds of dollars of room service on somebody else's bill. She's missing the events. She's too drunk. She's $1,800 negative in her bank account. She calls her grandma and has her grandma wire her $3,000. She hasn't spoken to her grandma in a year. I can't believe that this like never got back to her boss or that no one cared. She cries to Eva Chen, who didn't hire her at Teen Vogue. And Eva's like, it's okay. She's like, I'm a drug addict. I'm so fucked up. Because she had missed her flight, she had mixed up when the flight was. So she had to pack in 10 minutes and she couldn't find her pills. And she says, if you really want to see an addict, take away their pills. Yeah. And so she just has like a meltdown on this trip. Can you imagine hysterically crying? She's at like the Dolce & Gabbana mansion, hysterically crying to Eva Chen about how she's a drug addict and a fuck up. I mean, it is really sad and scary. I couldn't stop. I knew that I should quit my job when I got back to New York, and I was so fucked up that I didn't care. I was never going to be okay, I thought. She has to move out of her apartment because after, like, the mouse incident, things are just never really chill with her roommates, and she moves in with Nev Shulman. 
of catfish fame who has this gorgeous mid-century modern apartment with like really nice furniture. And luckily her room has its own private entrance. But you'll see. Things go real bad in poor Nev. She applies to be his roommate and he's looking for just a normal roommate. And she says, I am very healthy and normal. Nev took the bait. Catfish. (laughs) (laughs) I will say Nev Shulman is like a fucking idiot. To be like famously someone who gets tricked on the internet and then find a roommate on the internet and then get tricked again. It's just like, get outside, Nev. Stop trying to make friends on the internet. Touch grass. Okay, so Marco, her horrible best friend, gets a girlfriend. So they're spending a little bit less time together, but their time has gotten much more toxic together. Like all of his positive energy goes into the girlfriend and he's only coming to Kat being a psycho energy. I'd noticed how lazy and entitled my friend had become lately, like he was king in my home. Also, he always is buzzing all night and Nev is like, you have to tell your friends to stop buzzing in the middle of the night. And she'll be like, please stop and be nice to Nev. And Marco will be like, fuck Nev and fuck you guys. And she just like still lets him over all the time. He's doing more and more creepy things. Like she's always passing out from the heroin and letting him paint her naked. But then one night she wakes up and he's like taking a photo of her with her legs spread. Funny, I mumbled, closing them. Then I went back under. Another time, Marco's gaze snapped up. He lunged at the cat. He wanted to stomp on its head with his boot. The cat jumped in the air. Marco, I said. I fucking hate cats, he grumbled. He didn't like any animals as far as I could tell. I'd also once stopped Marco from kicking a drug dealer's dog in the projects. And this is one of the many weird things it's hard to notice about my sweet soulmate, about my dreamy best friend. Oh, Jesus. I mean, it is one of those things where you're like, okay, well, this is obviously a fucking lunatic from day one. His ex-girlfriend had a restraining order against him. That was like a big joke to them. Yeah. But meanwhile, at work, things are cooler and cooler. And they're starting to come to terms with the fact that you have to be online. Like print is slowly going online. And so she goes to like Lollapalooza and does it girl article write-ups. And all of her work does really well online. Like people love her online voice. And so I guess her talent really does save her. Yeah, but they really like don't respect it. She's constantly just like, yeah, I was doing these stupid blogs that everyone was giving me good feedback about them, but it sucks that all my bylines were on the internet because the internet will never last. (laughs) Meanwhile, Marco is like coming over. I stole that bitch's passport, he said unnecessarily. Then he stared at it, curled his lip. That's fucked up, I said. Fuck that cunt, he growled. Next time she falls asleep around me, I'm going to cut off all her hair. Marco, don't even joke about doing that to a woman. That's the sickest thing I ever heard. That is the sickest thing I've ever heard. So Marco brings a junkie over. His new pal is called Trash Can or something. Lester Garbagehead. (laughs) She thought he was 80, but he was just addicted to heroin. Lester's going to teach us to fix, Marco announced. Uh, He'd found a junkie, a real one to tutor him. And she's so lonely that she's like, well, I guess I'll hang out with Trevor, Marco's other friend, and Lester Garbagehead. They're always stealing Nev's spoons to do heroin off of. Yeah. And they think he doesn't know. Eventually, she gets called into Jean's office, and Jean is like, hey, I heard that you were drunk at Cirque du Soleil. And she's like, no, I wasn't. I tripped because it was dark. And she gets away with it. I mean, it really is like enabling. I would love to know JGJ's history. I would bet Jean has a real history of dealing with addiction in her life because the way that she keeps covering for Kat and allowing Kat. Yeah, like I'm sure she thought like, oh, this is someone I can save if I just like keep them safely employed. The way that we keep being like, she gets away with it. She's not getting, somebody is covering for her. Yeah, somebody high up with all the power is saying you're allowed to be drunk and high on heroin. At one point she shows up, she had tripped when she was high. And like scraped up her knees really bad and didn't even know. And she never changed her clothes. So she just showed up to work the next day covered in blood all over. And she had like no idea. And she's like, oh, you know, it was crazy. I had a nice coffee in my hand and I just fell down a stoop. And they're like, and then you wore that to work? And she's like, it was casual. It just is so bad. 
She ends up hooking up with Marco and then he starts being so, so mean. He goes from being really mean to being like insanely mean. He'll just show up at her house and like take money and take drugs and storm out. He steals her keys constantly and he'll just go into her house and take shit. She says it took her a while to realize that when he had her keys, he controlled her because then she couldn't stop him from coming in the house and she couldn't get into her own home and like she lived in fear of him. And he would just come in whenever he wanted and steal all her shit and then leave. And she just keeps letting him up and she'll be like, you stop robbing me. And he'd be like, okay, and then rob her. Marco, I should have been angry, but I was more confused than anything. Why was he acting this way? Because he's a horrible person. Then he stood up, pulled a can from his jacket pocket, spray painted groupie across the bedroom wall in hot pink. Hey, I shouted. I scrambled my feet, ran over and tried to pull the pink can from his hand. Marco pushed me away. I kept coming back. Then he shoved me to the bed, grabbed my neck and tightened his grip. Is this really happening? I screamed. Then, whore, he shouted. He spat in my face. Well, there was no second guessing that. He snatched my Adderall bottle off the mantle and my house keys. I mean, she lets him up again. And finally, one day, he like ransacks the living room, which is all Nev's stuff. And she's like, okay, well, you can't come up here And then he goes down through each stairwell and destroys every mirror on every hallway and then tags his name over all of the mailboxes and like breaks everything. And she's like, I think I have to find somewhere else to live. And Nev is like, yeah. But of course, she doesn't really take it seriously. And Jean is like, he's going to kill you. You have to get away from Marco. She had been showing everybody Marco for years. And everybody had been like, I don't know about this guy. I mean, this is the guy that she thought she could bring to a wedding. Yeah. And Jean is like, he's going to kill you. And she's like, oh, my God, everyone's so dramatic. And she's constantly at work rambling about the mice, rambling about Marco, like rambling about these things. And she thinks they all think she's sober. I'd sit on the steps next to the trash cans to put my head in my hands. I refused to accept that Marco was this scary monster. Marco was sit next to me and I'd spend 40 minutes trying to get through to him. You have to stop robbing me. This shit is so stupid. Just come back. Where do you go? This isn't you. I'm not giving you any more chances. I started stashing my pills, purse, money, anything of value in my closet for safekeeping. At one point, he breaks in again and locks her in her own closet, steals everything she has. So he takes her keys and leaves. And one day she comes back and she's been completely wiped out. She has literally nothing left. So she goes to his dad's house and then to his friend's house and she robs him and he starts freaking out. The relationship honestly persists even beyond this. We can't get into every instance, but it's so horrifying. So she and him stopped speaking for two months, but she goes, I was so lonely that Lester Garbage had called me from Arizona. His father had just died and Lester was cleaning up the house. Did I want to join him? Not really, but I did anyway. She flies out to Phoenix to hang out with Lester Garbage Head, the heroin addict, as he cleans out his dead dad's house. And she says he picks her up from the airport and shoots up in both arms before they even leave. And she's just like, are you good to drive? And he's like, yep. And after three days, he goes, why'd you come here if you're not going to fuck me? And she's like, oh, okay. And she just goes home. And she's just lonely and she's sad and it's devastating. Like her life is so bad. Her apartment is dirty. She has no friends. She has no one in her life besides her boss. And so she goes to Vegas to go to the Oscars of hair and present an award. She's drunk on stage. Everybody in the fucking industry is there. She comes back home. She gets an email from Neve with the ominous subject line, you are not the victim. Oh boy. I opened the email, which was epic. A missive. Way too long for me to reprint here. Nev was furious that I hadn't moved out yet. He called me destructive, selfish, messy, and inconsiderate of him, his girlfriend, his home, his life. You wonder why people are always mad at you. This is why. Then it didn't help that I found one of my many missing spoons in your drug box covered with crack. Oops. I sat by baggage claim reading this over and over. I had no idea how to respond. It wasn't crack, I finally wrote back. It was heroin. Jesus Christ. Otherwise, I have to admit, Nev had some salient points. She gets called into a meeting in JGJ's office about the fact that she may have been drunk at the awards show, and she decides to go to an NA meeting. It's her birthday. 
Yeah, it's her birthday and she like unloads. And then afterwards, she tries to just sneak out. And they were like, no, you need our numbers. Like, you need to call us. You need to keep coming. And she's like, awesome, I will. And then she intends to never talk to them again. I slept like a club baby seal all that night. The next morning, my Blackberry was lit up with messages from the NA chairwoman and a few other women, but I didn't write back. I was too embarrassed. Besides, I felt so much better now that I had gotten some rest. And it was fashion week. And I had the Charlotte Ronson show that morning. I dabbed on some NARS heat wave lipstick and pulled an Isabel Morant, a 12 floaty dress over my head. As a Condé Nast editor, goddammit, how bad could my life be? And so then she goes to this fashion show and she sees this cool it girl who she'd done a profile on, Chrissy Miller. She goes to say hi to Chrissy Miller and Chrissy's like, oh my God, you have to meet my friend Leslie. Leslie is the chairwoman. And she's like, what the fuck? She's like, this is the universe. And suddenly she has respect for people in NA because if cool people know cool people in NA, then I guess NA is cool. She's like, I can't believe other addicts work in fashion. She literally says, she's like, I had no idea that bloggers could be addicted to drugs. <laughs> I was like, exclusively. <laughs> Anyway, so then she's in JGJ's office. She lies again about being drunk at the awards show, but she's not doing good. She hits up the graffiti guys again and just is like straight up like, hey, I don't have any friends. Can I come hang out with you? This is so stupid that I believed her. But she talks about how like she really sees it kind of as a sign that she met that woman, Leslie. That had been God's way of telling me believe. I pulled on a Marlboro ultra light. I mean, I just had to be patient. I repeated this stuff in my head over the next several weeks. And guess what? All that positive thinking really made a difference. Slowly, day by day, I started to feel better, more social, more creative, more at ease around other people, healthier. I refocused on my career. I even went on a few dates. Just kidding. I caved and called Marco. I mean, it's true. She just keeps falling back into these same horrible patterns and reading it. It's like watching a horror movie. I'm like, don't go in there. She calls him. He comes up. He's shooting her up. He's like, you have horrible veins. They're like laughing about him injecting into her neck. Look, you can stay in your sleep if you want, but I'm only giving you this one chance. You understand? Marco nodded. This is a test. Eventually, he starts robbing her again, and she flips out, and she's like, you have to leave. I fucking hate you. And of course, this is not the last time they see each other. They just keep doing drugs. It's Christmas now, and she's like living with him, basically, and they're just on this loop of drugs. They're watching Eyes Wide Shut over and over again, and she says she just keeps like nodding off and coming back, and that movie is still playing. She's going to work. They have these meetings every week. They keep being like, well, Kat, like, what are you guys doing? And she's like, January is strong brows. And they go, we know. That page shipped three weeks ago. We're on to February. So the new opener is bronzer combined with blush. We call it brosh. Blonzer, fake, correct me. Right. She's just bombing and looking horrible in these meetings. Things with Marco are just once again in a tornado. She's kind of relying on her sister, Emily, to, like, come save her from this Marco situation. Trevor, Marco's friend, is kind of a part of it. It ends up in just like this whole absolute tornado where, again, it's not the last time they see each other. It was Friday night. I went home, had my locks changed, and went to sleep. On Monday, I called in sick to work. On Tuesday, I called in sick. On Wednesday, I was in such bad shape at work that the magazine contacted my family. Later that day, my dad drove four hours up from D.C. to talk to me. On Thursday, I promised Jean that I was checking into a hospital and I was put on disability. But I just went to bed at home instead. On Friday, Jean emailed me and called me saying that if I didn't check in somewhere, she would have to fire me. On Friday evening, I got out of bed, gathered a bunch of beauty products into a plastic bag, and took a taxi to a mental hospital. So she checks into the mental hospital and says that she is depressed and suicidal. And after a few days, they're like, that is obviously not true. You're obviously a drug addict. You need to go to rehab. And she's like, you can't send me to rehab because then my boss will know that I've been doing drugs. And they're like, well, we can't check you out into the world. Like, you have to go to rehab. So she spends, I think, like 10 days refusing rehab before she finally agrees to go. And it's a rehab that she has to pay for herself. So it is not fancy. She ends up only going for about 10 days. 
She says, it's very bad form for a privileged addict like me to talk smack, pun intended, about an affordable treatment center. At $100 a day, that's what Spirit House was. But I'm going to do it anyway. That's how much this place sucked. So what if it was inexpensive? They couldn't keep people there. At least one person got up and bailed or went AMA against medical advice every day. The rest of us fantasize about it. Also, when she's in the mental hospital, her parents come up and they want her to have a talk with her parents. And she refuses to talk about mental health with her parents. Because she's like, what the fuck are they going to do besides just prescribe me more drugs or something? Like, this is so insane. We don't talk to each other. And her mom is still like, I think the real problem is her ADD. I think it's her behavioral problem. And then she's like, and then she had that horrible abortion when she was in high school and Kat loses it. Yeah. So she's at rehab. She stays for a few days. You can't get sober unless you want to get sober. Yeah, that's the thing. I guess she's technically sober this literal day. Yeah. So she goes back to Lucky for a few months. Everyone's treating her with kid gloves. I was taking a big soul-flattening daily mix of pills just like before, and then I was deep in my addiction again. I wasn't allowed to attend events anymore, and I started calling in sick. If you're going to stay home, you must speak to me, Jean would say. Is that clear? She would call Jean's assistant and be like, tell Jean I'm not coming. But she would just keep doing it. But she was still writing these little blog posts that were actually quite successful and doing well. And Jean was like fighting tooth and nail for her behind the scenes. So she comes back and goes, even though you're not allowed to go on these trips anymore, people really love your little missives. So instead of making them weekly, we'd like you to write one every day. And then she just can't. Like, that's too much work for someone who is like fighting ADHD and taking a fuck ton of stimulants. So she thinks she sees a rat again at her desk. And then she just like fucking loses it. She goes in and says, I have to quit. And Jean is like, I want to help you. And she's like, you can't. So she leaves. And then she's just unemployed and in her room taking drugs constantly. Just like Adderall and then Xanax and then Adderall and then Xanax. Yes, February 2010. She had one month left of insurance from her severance plan. I filled a few months worth of Adderall, Adderall XR, Vyvanse, Xanax, Clonopin, Valium, Ambien, and Lunesta. Each script was only 5 or $10 with my Aetna card. When my insurance ran out, I officially bowed out of the game of life. I was all alone. No more Condi, no more alarm clocks, no more F-Train, no more iced coffee, no more beauty events, no more desk sides, no more production meetings, no more editors-in-chief, no more deadlines, no more pedicures, no more haircuts, no more internet. No more outside world, no more getting dressed, no more effort. It was all over. Then she tries to overdose. And she tells her mom. Her mom sends the police and Emily in. They bang down the door. They literally have to break the door open to get her out. They bring her to the hospital. And the next day from the hospital, she calls her sister and says, can you get me at Bellevue? It's a long story. And her sister is so pissed. She finally does show up and then leaves immediately, puts her in a cab with no money. And only then does Kat remember, oh, yeah, she was there last night. She's also trying to freelance at this point, but she can't meet a deadline, let alone a deadline when she like doesn't have a desk and anyone watching over her shoulder. So she turns in the worst essays you've ever read to Self Magazine. She has this fear that Marco could come back at any minute. So she links up with this DJ from L.A. who sounds fucking horrible and his friend Soupy. They protect her at first. They threaten to kill Marco. They say, leave us alone. And then he just moves into her apartment and he's like a real drug addict. He's always keeping night hours and he just is so awful to her. He's constantly saying, like, just because I'm staying here doesn't mean I want to talk to you. You're not my friend. He's also, like, raping her all the time. He's using her for sex. When she stops having sex with him, he's, like, assaulting her constantly in her own home. She finally kicks him out. And when he shows back up a week later, he'll buzz and buzz and buzz until she, like, lets him back up again. And we were talking about this earlier. It's just so horrible to read about these people who are in her life. But when you are an addict, when you're living your life like this, you only have other horrible people in your life because anyone with, like, a head on their shoulders is not putting up with this. My life was on repeat like Marco's eyes wide shut DVD. I knew that man outside was bad. I buzzed that bad man back up. She ends up getting pregnant and having another abortion. It was over in a snap. I woke up surrounded by other girls coming out of anesthesia, but only I was strapped to a stretcher. You were screaming and thrashing around, the doctor said. 
The nurses took me out of their restraints. I went into the bathroom. My hands trembled as I applied my lipstick. I didn't have anyone to take me home, so they just let me go. I walked out into the street and put on my headphones. It's Brittany, bitch. It was a gorgeous early evening. I'd been in the abortion clinic for hours and hours. The sky was turning pink over Union Square. I pulled a 30 milligram Adderall out of my pocket and crunched it between my teeth. Then I put a piece of Trident pink bubble gum in my mouth. Brittany and I sauntered down Park Avenue South. I knew there was a blood streak on the waistband of my white cutoff shorts, but I didn't care. So at this point, she's gotten an eviction notice. She has no job. She has nothing in her life. And she calls her grandma again. She goes to visit her grandma and she cries. And her grandma says, we're going to get your life back on track. You're going to work with my life coach and I'm going to support you financially like if you stick to the program. And so she does this kind of unofficial rehab with her grandma's life coach where she spends a couple months with her grandma and then she'll go back to New York City for like two weeks and then back to visit her grandma. The first couple months, she's just with her grandma and things are getting better. She's working out every day. She's helping her grandma unclutter her house. She's meeting with this life coach who just keeps doing personality tests with her that she thinks are silly, but they're kind of working because Vanessa is like, okay, we're not even going to focus on this addiction because I don't have the tools to work on it. You don't want to work on it. We're just not going to work on it. I'm more interested in the finances. She's like, you're taking a lot of money out of a lot of expensive ATMs on the Lower East Side. Yeah. And then they're like, okay, well, you need to find a passion again and you need to be excited about something. They're also like, you need friends. So she calls back the graffiti guys and she starts partying with Sam again, like Alex's buddies. And so having friends again is nice. And she says her party friends become real friends. So I think she has friends at this point. And so she's splitting her time between Alphabet City and Charlottesville, Virginia with her grandma. And the life coach is like, you need to find something you're passionate about. And she's like, I am actually pretty passionate about beauty for dirty girls. She's like, why is there no edgy beauty for like party girls to like cover their under eyes? Like it's not just about being a put together lady. She's like, there should be grunge beauty. So she thinks about putting together a blog, even though she really looks down upon online media. And then she finds out through Leslie, her friend who she met at the fashion show slash at that NA meeting, that Jane Pratt from Jane Magazine is launching a new online project with Tavi Gevinson. Well, at that point, it was called like janepratt.com or something like that. And then she like gets a bunch of jobs at this magazine. It was kind of confusing. She keeps saying, no, 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 I don't want a job and I'm an addict. And then they're like, well, they want a beauty editor and a drugs editor and somebody who will just like be disgusting. And she's like, I could do that. I'm disgusting. So this project keeps morphing. She ends up getting brought on as a full-time editor, even though she's like, that's not what I want. I don't want a full-time job. I want to be a contributor. And she's considered a founding member of this website. Yeah. Tavi Gevinson leaves. JanePratt.com, it turns out, was not an available website. It becomes ExoJane, which pretty big deal. So she's a founding editor at ExoJane. And she's a mess. It's the beginning of the first person personal blog essay, which at the time was groundbreaking. It's now regular, regular breaking. And she's also doing PCP now. So that's like a big part of her schedule. She's getting dusted, she calls it, and then writing these essays during the day and then like flipping out at work. She's horrible. She's like a higher up at this company. Again, she's just failing up and up and up. She comes in and just berates everybody about how stupid online magazines are. And then she'll like write something that goes mega viral. And she gets picked up by Gawker a lot. A lot of times Gawker will criticize or love what she has to say. And it goes super viral. And then she'll just like fall off the earth for six weeks and go into like a drug-induced coma. But when she comes back, the website can't get rid of her because she is bringing in so many views. Yeah. And then she'll like come back and be like, why didn't you consult me on this project? Why wasn't I consulted on this article? This article sucks. And then they're like, well, you were off the grid for six weeks and we don't know what to do about it. She would constantly just scream at Jane. She got to hire an assistant who she brought in. It was one of her old interns from Lucky. And she just is horrible to her intern. 
I mean, she's just screaming at people constantly. She's an absolute terror. She's become really anorexic. And she says the less she weighs, the meaner she is. She's like, it becomes everyone's problem. She's snarling. She's so humiliated by like the body positivity at XO Jane. She's like, this isn't real magazines. They're supposed to be aspirational. And these are regular. Yeah. And she also hates that they have like, I took Accutane and made me bleed from my butthole. And she like screams, let's take that down. Don't put butthole on my website. Yeah. Whitney Houston dies and she writes an essay about her own addiction in relation to Whitney Houston's death. And it goes mega, mega, mega viral. And suddenly everyone wants to interview her. Suddenly she's blowing up as like an online personality and an it girl. She's getting offers to write a book. And so now, even though she's really more fucked up than ever, she's on PCP. She can never come in on time. They need her more than ever because they're getting so many calls about doing interviews. And it's like the more press she gets, the more press she brings to the website. So she's like getting paid more than ever for not coming in. And when she does come in, she just berates everybody. She's threatening to quit all the time. And then finally, there's like a mutual quitting when she sends an email to her boss being like, I can't come in today. I did too much heroin. And they're like, this is just inappropriate. And I will say she rightfully has an absolute breakdown about why is it okay that I like use my drug use for clicks on your website and you love that. But when I am actually so fucked up that I can't come in, you hate that. Well, she's like, it feels like you're trying to cover your ass and be like, we did everything we could to get her help. When meanwhile, they were exploiting her. And I agree. It, it is very fair to be like, you know, if I had died on one of these expeditions, she's like, they had me snort bath salts for an article. I think that she was being horrible and impossible to work with. But I will say the way that the website was equally addicted to her virality. Yeah, that they were happy for her to be a mess as long as it was beneficial to them is exploitive. So then she's doing these interviews, just dragging the magazine because she's so pissed at them. And they come to a mutual you're fired slash I quit. And then she has all these job offers because she's so of the moment. She ends up getting a job at Vice writing about drugs she was telling all of the publications, I quit my job because I love doing PCP and it's really hard to do PCP and have a job. Yeah. So then they pay her to do PCP and barely have a job. And like the more that she is addicted to drugs, the more fame she gets. She gets a book deal, which is the book we're reading right now. It took me until spring 2013, almost a year after my career really popped off to get a decent proposal together. But I finally did. Then I got a book deal and now two more rehabs, one overdose, two boyfriends, another pregnancy, two apartments, and approximately 15 thousand fucking years later here you are holding that book in your chic little hands and then the book just kind of ends there's an afterwards how did the crazy blonde drug addict get through the forest she took the psychopath she wraps everything up very clean she's like here's where everyone ended up me and my family are groovy now and i'm like what the fuck are you talking about she's like you know i'm a lot cleaner she started writing this drug column for Vice. And then at some point, she had a heroin overdose. And so Vice paid to send her to this like really fancy rehab in Thailand and write about it. She says that saved her life almost. She's not clean, but she does the right amount of Adderall now. She does Pilates at noon and berries at seven, which I'm like, that's a lot of fucking working out. And she's like, everything's good. We all get along. We're so happy. I'll never be clean because I don't really want to be, but it's fine. I'm managing it. Who knows what will happen next? It's insane. I can't imagine he hasn't blamed himself a little for my problems with ADHD drugs, her dad, and how their relationship is actually so good now. And I'm like, I actually don't think he blamed himself at all. I think that he thinks you're the problem and he was just doing his job as a doctor and not a father. It really was actually stressful to read the part where she just like doesn't hate her parents anymore. So it ends with her saying, and you'll never believe it. Now I'm hearing that there's rats at Vogue. When I read the story in the post, I was all, I could not have handled that. So maybe things worked out for my career when they should have. Then I started thinking, maybe there aren't really rats at Condé Nast, you know? Maybe the person reporting the rat sightings is another drug addict, ambitious beauty assistant, hallucinating things under her desk. A girl like I used to be. 
Did you ever think of that? Honey, if you're out there, it's not always going to feel like it does today. Or maybe my theory is crazy, but so many girls do take Adderall these days. So you really just never know. It's a crazy book. It's so scary that she's just like a real person who's just still out there. And she says my sobriety or like whatever version of it she is at right now is precarious. She's like, I don't go to meetings. I don't maintain it well. I'm very worried for her. Yeah. It's a really well-written book, though. I just say like in the Caroline Calloway of it all, I get why Kat Marnell doesn't super want to associate with her. Oh, same. She is like such a talented writer. I mean, as you were talking about it earlier, she's not putting on this life for the content. Right. I feel like right now we're in an era where we see a lot of people being what they think will get clicks. She is not being anything that she isn't. Her and Marco were not stealing each other's shit and calling the police and then like threatening murder so that they could write about it later. It was bad. Yeah. And in this book, it comes across bad. On the Patreon this week, I think we're going to talk more about the Count Marnell, Caroline Calloway, Emily Marnell of it all. Emily Marnell is wild if you want to look her up on TikTok. I really felt so sad for her after reading this book because she was so put together for a time. Yeah. It's like sad to see how it all fell apart. You know, Kat Marnell does a really good job of she had a fucking glamorous life. It is glamorous to be flown out by Procter & Gamble private with Eva Chen to go to Dolce & Gabbana's mansion. And the truth of addiction is that even when you're being flown out by Procter & Gamble to go to a mansion, you can't handle it. Yeah. A lot of people are like, oh, I was clubbing and it was so bad. I was coked out and I was missing work. They don't make it sound bad, but let me tell you, thinking about her with her like gnarly hair covered in blood with no friends, just alone on 4th of July, you're like, oh God, your life is bad. It's awful. You can like smell her apartment and it is not good. Yeah. She has this scene where she goes into her storage unit and she's like, oh my God, I never washed any of my clothes and I didn't even know for a year. I was showing up to Condé Nast in dirty, bloody, disgusting clothes and I didn't even know it. Oh my God. I mean, this is a good one. Really interesting. How fertile is the soil? I'd give it a 4.5 out of 5. Me too. How many warm teenies would you enjoy? Zero. Zero. Stay sober. She scares the shit out of me, honestly. I know we laugh about Tori Spelling and the kooks or whatever, but she's not a kook. She's like someone who needs help. It would actually like overwhelm me to be her presence. I think she's the kind of person that your friend is like, oh my God, she seems crazy. And you're like, no. No, she's crazy. She's crazy. (laughs) I love you guys. Love you guys. See you soon. Thank you so much to our five-star reviewers. Thank you, SD7896. You are not standard definition to me. You are high def perfection. Thank you, TLK too low. Once again, we're just too high over here. Flying high, getting high, all the things that are within our right. Thank you, pod lover, WH. Well, I'm review lover, WH, and I appreciate you. Thank you, Ro Roach. You are the only roach I wouldn't squish between my shoes. Thank you, Holly K-O-K. Well, this review is friggin' A-O-K by me. Thank you, Crystal Covert. Well, my appreciation for you is not covert. It is out in the open. That's all for this week. Thank you so much. I love you guys, and I can't wait to talk to you soon.